Welcome to episode 31 of No Challenges Remaining, probably sponsored by Baskin Robbins or something, if we did have sponsors. <laughs> my name is Ben Rothenberg, and joining me, as always, is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hey, Ben. We're on opposite coasts again. I know. Long time no see. Not really. It has been about 48 hours. Yeah. How have you been? How's your how's your post Indian Wells recovery going? So far, so good. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I probably need you know, to get back onto a regular sleep schedule of not going to sleep at like two or three in the morning mm-hmm. and waking up at like 10, mm-hmm. just by nature of my job. But but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty good. It's Miami's a bit quick. Miami does not wait around for you. No, main draw play already began today. And this is Tuesday. So I won't lie. I mean, there, there is a bit of an India Wells hangover. And I have to think that the players feel it too. Yeah. I was talking to a player about this actually, while waiting online for pasta or something, he asked if I was going to do Miami too. And I was like, no, it's a lot just doing Indian Wells. And I think he was confused by that. But we were there mm-hmm. pretty much first ball till way after last ball every single day for 14 days. Yes. Which is longer than any player who, except for like the champions is. And even they get shorter days and they get off right. days. They get off days, yeah. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a, obviously a no complaints, glorious place, pleasure to, to cover the tournament. Um, really impressed by a lot of the, the the improvements and changes that they've already made and will continue to make through 2014. But yeah, there's a reason why most people usually get like a week off after a slam. Yeah. You know, and this was 14 days worth, even though main draw didn't start until like whatever Tuesday or Wednesday, like we were there for qualies like starting Sunday. So it was a bit, uh, a bit of a grind. Bit of a grind, no bit of a grind. And I don't think there's, if there are any writers doing both, there are very, very few. This year, none of the American ones are doing both. None right. of the main, main, you know, American writers who we think of as being sort of core traveling right. tennis beat writers, quote unquote, are doing both. So you just got to pick yeah. and choose. And I think for reasons we've already discussed, a lot of us pick Indian Wells. Yep. Logistically much easier, much nicer. So we're very, we should be very refreshed from our two weeks in the desert, hopefully, and happy to bring you another show. Yeah. On this show, we're going to talk about, obviously, the Indian Wells tournament that was past, as well as the Miami tournaments in the future. We're going to talk about, also, specifically, articles that came out regarding the Williams sisters skipping the tournament, as they have every year for the past 10 years or so. And then we're going to take a number. And then, lastly, an interview with Mallory Burdett. And that'll be it. Sound good, Courtney? Sounds awesome, Ben. Let's do it. Okay, so Courtney, what do you think is the major takeaway from the 2013 BMP Paribas Open? What will you remember most? I will remember it as the tournament where Rafa got real. Yeah. Where, I mean, obviously what he was able to accomplish on the court was pretty phenomenal. I think, I can't think of anybody who picked him to win the tournament. I don't think so. I, I, I could be wrong on that. But, you know, I mean, it was an uphill climb. And I think that I know for myself, I was like, you know, if he makes quarters... And loses to Fed. That's a good tournament for Rafa. And, you know, head back to the European clay court season and, you know, dominate there. And it would make sense. But for him to come in in his first hard court tournament since Miami last year and win his first hard court title since Tokyo 2010. Yeah, that's a little bit ridiculous. And what I appreciated about the way that Rafa handled the week was that by the time he beat Federer in the quarters, he was kind of shrugging too, you know, like where you would ask him, like, 
you know, are you ready to win the tournament or, you know, how's your confidence level? And instead of being the Rafa that we're used to, a guy who talks down his chances, who, you know, talks about everything being very difficult and very impossible and blah, 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 to then becoming a guy who literally was kind of shrugging and being like, who knows? Yeah, maybe I can win this tournament, you know, and yeah. I'm not going to say that I can't. And I found that refreshing. I, I found the Rafa swagger. You know, if this is Nadal 2.0, I'm totally down. And we talked about this on the last show a lot with uh, yeah. how he's addressing himself or just talking about himself in a different way than usual, in a way that, you know, sort of meshes more with how I think about Nadal was now how Nadal was talking about Nadal. And that was different than it has been in the past. But yeah, he came in and beat a bunch of top players. Let's be clear, he didn't play either of the two guys in current form who would have really been jaw-dropping, which is Djokovic or Murray. Right. Del Potro beat both of those guys. Nadal got a very tough win over Golbis. He got a win over a clearly struggling Roger Federer, which I think there has to be a huge asterisk next to in terms of, you know, beating Federer, the significance of that. Sure. And then he beat Burdich in straights, and then Del Potro was up a set in a break and kind of ran out of gas a little bit in that final. So as far as winning Indian Wells go, it wasn't the hardest Indian Wells path that anyone ever had. But still, winning Indian Wells in your first hardcore tournament in that long. It's a big, as I said, uh, <laughs> radio interview uh, that you enjoyed, um, that you overheard me doing. It's, it's turning question marks into exclamation points for Nadal. So. Word play. Word play. I try. <laughs> I try. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it was a remarkable feat. You know, we can wax poetic about Rafa. I mean, I, it was, you know, by the time the, the finals rolled around, I, I really didn't know what else to say about Rafa. Like, I yeah. felt like I had kind of... I just was like throwing up my my hands. I was I I can't explain it. And and uh, the only explanation is a Rafa is that good, and b the field really didn't get better in no. the last seven months. Maybe that's unfair because I think that we probably do think that Burdick has gotten better, and you know obviously Del Potro and Golbis and you know Harrison I guess was his opening round, and then Roger who. You just kind of got to take out of the equation just because he wasn't 100% fit. But, yeah. you know, I mean, for him to do that, I think Greg Couch sent a bunch of tweets that people took issue with about, you know, what does it say about the state of the men's game? And they were very similar and I think very fair questions to raise, especially in light of, as we've spoken about before, you know, kind of a lot of the shade that was thrown at the WTA when Serena came back from injury and immediately dominated the tour. So it's a fair question. I mean, you can come out and say, no, there's nothing wrong with the ATP and, you know, it's it's different. You can't compare the two tours and et cetera, et cetera. But it's a legitimate question. I think it's a, I think it's a totally fair comparison. I don't know that it's ever fair to dump on the tours when someone who has a double digit slam count comes back and succeeds. Mm-hmm. I mean, as Serena did, as as Nadal is doing. I mean, that's, that's a lot on the, the player and how great they are. But it also, I mean, if you're going to say it about Serena, you have to say it about the ATP in this situation. Right. You because, have to at least raise the yeah. question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other question that I think that I started to raise a little bit after the tournament was over, after Nadal had won, is we talk about how this wasn't his first, it was his first hardcore tournament in 11 months. And wow, it's so remarkable that he was able to succeed on hardcourts. Another question sort of becomes, you know, was this injury not as debilitating as maybe it was presented to be. I mean, he took himself out after winning the French Open, which was preceded by winning Rome and Monte Carlo. He loses the second round of Wimbledon, doesn't play again for a while. There was talk in his camp that he probably could have played the U.S. Open, Cincinnati, 
fall swing, Davis Cup, whatever, but he just wasn't confident in his conditioning. And same with Australia, but maybe, you know, it's not like he was in a wheelchair this entire time. He didn't have surgery. He didn't have anything that completely knocked him out. And I don't know. I just I just think it's another way to look at the coin was when you say, oh, it's so remarkable he came back from this. You have to wonder, well, what, what was this exactly if he was able to succeed with it for so long? If he says that, you know, the knee pain first started in Indian Wells last year, I think is what he says, mm-hmm. for him to have all that clay success with it still. I don't know. It seems like him winning with this sort of pain is not unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there's something to that. I mean, I know that when you raised the issue, because you, you raised the question, and, you know, my response was kind of, you know, who's to say? I mean, to right. me... Right, no, no one knows. No, no one knows. But, like, for me, I would kind of buy that maybe a little bit more. Or, sorry, I should back up. I would be more inclined to buy that argument had it not been an Olympic year. Okay. But for him to not play the Olympics was pretty shocking to me. And and at the time, his withdrawal to me, and even looking back on it, was quite telling. And, and, and to me, it really felt like, wow, Rafa really is hurt because he was supposed to be the flag bearer for Spain that year. I mean, there was a lot kind of going into it, and he loves kind of all of that really patriotic play-for-your-country stuff. So that, to me, is the real big signal. I mean, I think that maybe back in December when we had a podcast, when – Nadal had gotten sick and then withdrew from Doha and from the Australian Open. I think that I could be wrong, but I think both of us did have question marks about that. That like, or I think maybe you had more question marks than I did. Right. About whether or not, oh, he got sick and so it derailed his training. So he doesn't feel like he's equipped to play best of five on a hard court at the Aussie. And that's why he's not playing. But then he accelerated his comeback. He wasn't really supposed to come back to Acapulco. People forget. And he accelerated it to come back earlier to come go to Chile and Brazil before Acapulco. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are questions marks as to like how, you know, how healthy was he? And especially in light of like, you know, again, and it's not a fair comparison at all, but it's more of just kind of like you have to note it because it's completely admirable is Federer, who is taking the court with, you know, knowing that he's compromised, knowing that he's not at his best, but no. going out there and competing and seeing what happens. and Dead goat walking. Yeah, and if that means that he takes a horrible beatdown from a rival, and he knows what the narratives will be after that if he loses that match sort of thing, or even, you know, taking the court against Vavrinka, knowing that he was compromised, and, yeah. and giving Stan chances to take that match. So, you know, it's, I'm not saying that I'm not making that comparison to like put down Rafa or to question Mar- Rafa. I'm more just making it to be like, wow, like we really do have to respect like what Roger does and how he manages that sort of stuff because he really, outside from the mono, he's never really had a situation where he's taken extended time off just because he was like, oh, I don't feel well. Right. And he's had remarkably good health through his career. Yeah, he's been very lucky. Said. And he said as, that. And Rafa said it as well. Yeah. That, you know, it's almost like it's a, I think the way Rafa almost turned it, termed it was like, it's a gift. It, it's a talent, what Roger has in and of itself, his ability yeah. to stay healthy, which is fair. And the way he plays, which and is. And the way he plays, yes. Yeah, which is pretty safe. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's all good points. And I do think that Federer earned a lot of goodwill for going out there. And we can also use that to talk about another topic that various uh, writers and Patrick McEnroe, I think, tried to draw a comparison between Federer going out there and taking his beating, quote unquote, and the withdrawals of Soser and Azarenka. 
and saying, I think one writer, Damien Cox, who writes for, who does covers like Grand Slams, I think, okay. and uh, writes for the Toronto, mm-hmm. wrote like, uh, you know, the same day Federer goes out and takes his beating while not 100%, two women withdraw, tells you all you need to know about the two tours or something. Right. Which I think is unfair to say the least. But yeah, so what what do we, do you think there's a fair comparison that more players should go out and do that and play it not 100%? I mean, obviously there are the extremes like Ennin and the Australian Open final against Moresmo or something. Right. But uh, but in general, yeah, what do you what do you think of that notion of going out there and taking your lumps? I mean, is that really fun for fans to watch? You know, to watch like a hobbled, uh, you know, I mean, I think that it, first of all, I think that it's it's a bit unfair. Obviously, the comparison in and of itself, but I think that it's a bit unfair to lump Stozer into this conversation because she's a player who never withdraws like due to injury, no, yeah, like never. from a from a match. Or from a tournament, like when she's in, she's in and she will play and she has played in a like, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to take my lumps, I'm going to see what's what happens. And if it doesn't work out for me, okay. So she's been a player who's done that. So for her to withdraw in advance of a quarterfinal against Kerber, you know, it was against Kerber, right? Right. Like, that's not like an impossible match for her. It's not like, you know, so I think that she was injured and, and she withdrew from Miami this week. So on a hard court, like, you know what I mean? Like, good tournament for her good tournament for her and and so i feel like that's a bit unfair i mean i think that to the extent that the comparisons are made between federer and azarenka it really comes down to me to benefit of the doubt now i having been in indian wells and having watched uh vika in practice and as well as on court like i have no doubt she was hurt yeah she was there right there have been other instances where i have been at tournaments that she's withdrawn from and I have doubted whether or not she was legitimately injured, whether or not she couldn't go out there and compete. And so I know that she was hurt. She was you could see it when she played Ursula Radvanska um in the fourth round. She Did won she... six three, six one, and then <laughs> yeah. as soon as match point was over, she sort of threw a little mini tantrum on court. A bit, a it bit. It was bizarre. It was bizarre. But you know, so do I think that in that situation, like she should like take the court? Look, I mean your your health is your health. And you protect it. Just in the same way that I would not begrudge Roger Federer with like withdrawing from the tournament with a bad back in advance of the Nadal match, I don't begrudge Vika withdrawing here. But a lot of that is informed by my genuine belief that she was hurt. Right. Whereas in other situations where I've kind of been like, ah, yeah, I do begrudge her withdrawing. So it's really kind of circumstance by circumstance. No, the benefit of the doubt part is, is, is you know, and I don't think that many people really give Azarenka too much, you know, grief over this, this withdrawal whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, it's outside of those couple, you know, lumping, very broad generalizations that were made. I think that people saw that she was hurt, but I think people also recognize that, you know, there's sort of a girl who cried wolf situation here a bit. And this yeah. was her 20th, at least, withdrawal from a tournament, either after the draw was made or, you know, mid-tournament or retirement uh, since the beginning of just 2010. which is a huge number, especially for someone who has had so much success, who's had been at the top of the game, really hasn't had many injuries that have kept her out from multiple tournaments. Usually she retires one week and is back the next, whenever the next event is. So I think that that lack of benefit of the doubt has been earned by her. Yeah, and also, I mean, this is her second... I mean, she's undefeated this year. Yeah. But... Like she's withdrawn twice before matches against opponents against whom she has a losing record. Yeah. So against Serena Williams with that weird pedicure injury. Mm-hmm. 
which internally, I mean, within, I mean, there's a lot of kind of raised eyebrows about that one. And then this time against uh, withdrawing before she was supposed to play Caroline. So, you know, I don't know. I was just adding that fact because it's, it just goes more towards like, if you just read facts, black and white, it's just, it's a tough sell for her when she withdraws. And then like she to withdraw before a quarterfinal. And then like, as of right now, she's playing Miami. Still in as of now. Would not be shocked to see her withdraw before her first match. Absolutely. But still in. Yeah. Or after her, or, or before her second match, even. Right. What is your pointer? But she yeah. did in Rome. So. Right. And was quite brash about it in Rome. Yeah. Was was really, I mean, I was there. So I was there at the press conferences and they weren't transcribed. So nobody has the audio, like the English audio, except for like me and a few other writers. Like she was basically just kind of like, it was a bit of a middle finger to the roadmap. Yeah. Like she didn't even attempt to pretend that like, oh, my shoulder's killing me. And so I can't like play my next match. It was she won and then withdrew like on the same day. Yeah. All that goes into it, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately for her, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically what we're talking about, the injury part of it. Obviously, there was a lot of tennis that did not involve injury as well. Well, Ben, what do you make of the Sharapova title? What does it what does it mean to you? What does it signal? Yeah, Sharapova's title, I think, is similar to Rafa's in a lot of ways, in that she did not play the absolute best of the best, at their best, to get there. I mean, she had wins over uh, Irani, then Kirilenko, then Wozniacki. I mean, that's not a murderer's row as far as the top of the WTA is concerned. But she did it in very, very convincing fashion, especially over Wozniacki, who was having a pretty good week. Um, or a very moony week, anyway. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she she was just very confident, and we. But it's, at the same time, it's nothing we don't know. You know, we know that that Cherpova can show up to a tournament, avoid Azarenka and Serena, and walk away with the title. We've seen yeah. that happen. So it was a confident, very comprehensive performance. Very few hiccups for her, and she has to be feeling good about it. But at the same time, what does it prove? Big picture of the sort of power rankings of the tour. I'm not sure. Right. I'm not sure. That's so fair. that's that's basically my take. Is yours any different? No, not entirely. I mean, I think that it's, you know, I mean, it's a confidence boosting win. I thought that it was an impressive week insofar as she went through and played a bunch of grinders. Yeah. Who gave her nothing and she had to earn those wins. And she didn't drop a set to the title, but she played a bunch of clay quarters. She played a Ronnie, she played Arabuena Vicino, she played Schiavone, mm-hmm. uh, she played Caroline, and she played Kirilenko. And the toughest match in, for me when I watched it was her against Arani. Arani, like yeah, Arani a, gave her a good test. That there. was a solid first set that they played. And Maria really had to earn every single one of those points. And so, you know, that was – if I'm Maria Sharapova, that's what I take out of that tournament is that I was able to play patiently, play aggressively, play the game that I wanted to play. I served well. And all those things really kind of tee up her clay season where she's going to have to defend a, a load of points and obviously your French Open title. This was but a slow court, too. Super slow. Shockingly slow. Yeah. Which also has to be read into Nadal's success. Too. Exactly. I mean, the Nadal-Sharapova double just really, you know, which were last year's French Open champions. Like, it really does make you think that, like, it is the clay of hard courts. Yeah. If Madrid is the hard courts of clay the blue clay, Mm -hmm. then Indian Wells is definitely the clay court of the hards. Definitely. So, but you know, but I thought it was a, I thought it was a very emphatic win from her. And I don't know what your sense was, Ben, but like in press and stuff like that, I just really get the sense that she's just in a really good place mentally these days. Yeah. 
very relaxed, very chill and, you know, easy to crack jokes, making fun of herself. Like, it was good stuff. It's almost like all the steaminess is just relaxed her. Oh, the steam. Everybody needs a good steam. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, so that was that was a good week for her. Uh, what do we make of Caroline? We talked about Caroline a lot on this show. Um, she made the final, which I don't think many people would have seen going into this week, mm-hmm. especially considering that in Malaysia, her tournament before Indian Wells, she lost to somebody ranked like 186 yep. named Kiang Wang, who I don't think anybody's ever heard of. So what do we make about Caroline? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I you know, she played well. Mm-hmm. She played well this tournament. I mean, this tournament was basically like Caroline's career in a nutshell, which is that like her game allows her to notch wins against a vast majority of the players, like 99% of the tour. Mm -hmm. But against certain players who have the offensive weapons to render her powerless. And some consistency with them, too. And consistency, right? She's powerless. You know, she she can't do anything about it. And that's why she can't win slams, you know, is the whole notion of, like, to win a slam, when you look back on the players who have won slams, it's players who can blast the ball that when moments get tight they can hit the winner yeah you know to to make life easier for themselves whereas caroline is 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 just way too reactive i mean she was lucky to get past kerber Mm -hmm. if not for the moonballing extravaganza i don't think she gets past kerber at all no you know and then against sharapova like even she had to admit she had nothing she had no answer to that sort of yeah, she was surprisingly display. resigned there. I, I don't she think really I've ever was. heard Caroline. I've seen Caroline lose a bunch. I don't think I've ever heard her say, like, yeah, that, there's nothing I could do. Because yep. that's just not sort of, that's not her mindset. That's not most players' mindsets, uh, especially who, ones who have been at the top. It shouldn't be her mindset. No, it probably shouldn't be, but that's that's what happened out there. Yep. And she recognized that. I mean, the winner count was 33-2 to two right. in that match. Uh, and, Car- and Caroline has won matches with two winners before. But sure, but the, but the problem was the differential. Yeah. So like, uh, I I I think that Maria had a plus, a plus seven, winner mm-hmm. to unforced differential. I think Caroline had like a minus seventeen. That's I think that's right. Yeah. So I think she, she I think she had two winners and nineteen unforced. Yeah. Not gonna win I many mean, matches doing that. That's yeah. And and I'm not used to seeing. Yeah. Okay. I'm used to seeing Caroline low winner counts, but I'm but usually, when she's playing at her best, she's hitting less than like seven unforced for the match. Yeah. You know so. Let's let's talk about those moon balls. Well, Ben, there, you wrote about it. You talk about it. I wrote about what was it. Your, what was your thought? What was your well, thought process? My thought process is other than watching me cackle in the the press office of the press room as it was all going down. Everyone was cackling, including yeah. the audience. I've never heard like a crowd. I've heard I've seen sometimes where they sort of start giggling. If there's like a really long backhand slice, backhand slice exchange. Yeah. This was like a two minute long point, and the crowd was cracking up. Not like laughing with, kind of laughing at this <laughs> yeah. tennis, where the one who get a neutral ball, and then especially Kerber, I think, was doing it worse actually as the match wore on. Caroline started it, but Kerber well, ran with it. Caroline's moon balls actually look like she knows what she's doing. Kerber's moon balls look like what we do when we play on the public courts. Yeah, because she just doesn't have like the technique that makes it look fluid. No, Caroline's signature shot in a lot of ways is her moon ball. And her moon ball took her to number one in a lot of ways because she really can push players back way off the court where they're not comfortable hitting the ball. Um, we, seeing her do it in person, you can really tell like how tough some of those deep, deep balls are. Yeah. And Kerber, yeah, Kerber was just sort of like hitting it back up there, just trying to hit the middle of the court. Yeah. And there was very little sort of skill involved. And it was a semifinal of this tournament, let's be clear. It should be where the best of the best are doing battle. Two top just, ten players. Two top ten players. 
And it was a bit ridiculous. And the crowd was giggling during these rallies when another one would go up. Yeah. yeah. But that said, Caroline, when she was number one, she did a lot of sausage making, which I said on Twitter, people get confused by. But basically, it's, you know, grinding out something that's an ugly process to watch. And you don't want to know how the sausage was made, really, because it's gross. Sausage making is gross. But in the end, you get, you know, a tasty sausage. And it's there, and it's a W, and it's whatever else you want to do with this analogy. And that so, is, and that is Caroline. Yeah, and she that's embraces Caroline. the ugly win. She's like, yes. whatever. I have a, I mean, more so than any other player. Yeah. Like I feel like in the top ten, like she embraces the ugly win. She's like, I out, I out funk you. Yeah. Because so. it's chess out there, Ben. It's chess. They call it chess. They call it chess. Like I said, in my story it wasn't speed chess, <laughs> but it, but it was chess. So one other thing we want to talk about this podcast that's come up pretty much every year at Indian Wells, but again, late in this tournament, was the notable absences in the draw. Um, part of why this does not feel as much like, the, I think I've said it before, Indian Wells feels like the fifth slam for the men, and Miami feels like the fifth slam for the women. And a huge part of that is that Indian Wells does not have the Williams sisters since 2001. So there are a couple articles written about that. Well, they're from your outlet, Courtney. Why don't you tell us about the two articles? Sure. Yeah, there was one piece written in the uh, in the first week by Bruce Jenkins, and he his basic premise was that the Williams sisters need to kind of forgive and to come back, and it would be good for the game and good for their image and that sort of thing. Um, and then in the second week, a counterpoint was filed again on SI by um, a writer, uh, Elizabeth Newman, mm-hmm. who wrote that the the Williams sisters don't need to come back and they never should come back, which I thought was really great. I think that because it is a complicated situation to just kind of get people, I guess, up to speed, the very crude, I guess, and rudimentary explanation of the situation is that it's the 2001, 2001 Indian Wells. And uh, Serena was slated to play Venus in the semifinals, literally minutes before they were supposed to take the court. It was announced that Venus had withdrawn due to an injury and it was kind of turned into this whole, like, Richard Williams has chosen who gets through. And it was, you know, all that sort of stuff. Richard Williams says that, like, as Venus, the next day, or two days later, I guess, as Serena was in the final, Venus came down to sit in the box, uh, you know, to support her sister. And a number of racial epithets were yelled in their direction um, by the Indian Wells crowd. And because of that, the Williamses have vowed never to play the tournament again. They have kept by that promise. And so, but every time this tournament rolls around, it's always a topic of conversation as to whether or not they should come back. It's something we as writers get asked about a lot. I'm sure you get asked about it by fans. And it's something you have to explain frequently when you're there. Oh, why isn't Serena here? It's it's, it's an elephant in the room. On both sides. it's, It's the question of why isn't Serena here? And then the other, I mean, I get a lot of emails last week of just like, why are people harping on them to come back? Yeah. You know, so sort of thing. So, you know, it's it's obviously a very explosive kind of topic, you know, because it involves race issues. It brings up the issues um, regarding the fact that the Indian Wells crowd is predominantly white. It's mm-hmm. predominantly, you know, middle to upper class. It's a wealthy white crowd. And, you know, you're talking about two African-American athletes, two African-American women, young women at the time in 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Who who now topped the game and I don't know. I mean, before I weigh in, why don't you weigh in, Ben? And then I'll 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 tag on on mine. Like, what do you kind of take of the two pieces uh, that you read and um and just what your individual take is on it uh, is in general? I think I pretty much totally agree with what Elizabeth Newman wrote. There's this notion that Bruce Jenkins says that he you know 
can't understand, can't possibly understand what they, what it must have felt like for them. But, but yeah. just get over it. And that's such a logical disconnect for me. And that's what really sort of bugged me about Bruce's piece is that Bruce, um, who I, have, I don't think I've met, is a white guy, as is indicated by his little photo on SI. Yeah. And he talks in his piece, or refers to in his piece, um, opinions from Joel Drucker, white guy, Anita Collins, uh, who's speaking on behalf of her husband, sort of, bud, right. white guy, Neil Harmon, white guy, Matt Cronin, white guy, although sort of a dissenting opinion a little bit in this article. He was, yeah. Um, Chris Clary, white guy, Doug Robson, white guy. So it's all these white guys trying to say what they think these black women should do in response to this experience they had that was very much about them being black women, or at least that's how they saw it. Yeah. So I'm not sure what, uh, where they think they're getting the authority, or I understand that people have opinions, but for them to think that their opinions should be the be all end all of this, it just doesn't work for me. And I've, I've never, and I'm, people have asked me about it. I don't think there's any reason for Serena Venus to come back if only because they're independent contractors in the sport. And I've used that phrase a bunch when talking about this issue, just they are tennis players. The way the tours are set up, get to make their own schedule and Serena and Venus sort of like on a semi like freelance sort of way. I mean, people talk about mandatory tournaments, but they're only mandatory in the sense that there are penalties for not going. I mean, no one's really, really forcing them to go. And so and they so choose not to go. Will- yeah, if you're so long as you're willing to eat the penalty. Yeah. Then you know, and and I've heard other things of like, oh well, it would just be so good for American tennis if they played Indian Wells, and I was just like, but they play Stanford. Yeah. They play Charleston. They play Charleston. Yeah. You know, Venus plays Acapulco. I mean, like you know, I mean, like so they don't play that tournament. They play other tournaments in the states, and that's okay. Like, yeah. and maybe it's better to be able to you know, present them, you know, to the Northern California audience or the South Carolina audience, you know, of fans. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, Ben, for better or worse, has heard my rant about this before. Mm -hmm. But yeah, obviously, I I completely agree with Elizabeth Newman's take. And they have had consequences for not playing any else, too, in the form of, I mean, odds are, Serena especially, yeah, Serena especially would have won this tournament probably several times. Yep. In the 10 years she's missed it, Venus probably would have won, you know, made deep runs there, too. If they played doubles, they would have done that also. She's, they left a lot of ranking yeah. points and a lot of prize money. They've probably left the about $5 million of prize money on the table. Yeah. Over the course and a whole of, lot like, of ranking points 2001, too. yeah. Yeah. And maybe some weeks at number one they don't have. Right. And there was a time, there have been several times in the past 10 years, 2002, 2003, and I think again in, like, 2009, where they were one and two in the world. Yeah. And they did it without any Out, wells. Yeah. So it's just it shows you it would have been a lot more if they had gotten those big points and big money that Indian Wells offers. But they chose not to. And like I said, independent contractors, they make their schedule. They have no obligation to whoever, to Larry Ellison, to any of the other, you know, white guys who run the tournament there. They it's not their responsibility to make them happy. And, and just from an optics perspective, there is something really off putting to me about this notion of like white tennis you know community basically being like the williamses should should get over it they should come and they should play for our entertainment yeah there's just a minstrel re under you know minstrel undertone to that that i can't stomach you know like they mm-hmm. choose where they i mean they are un, they are not obligated to entertain you yeah you know we've talked about this as well that you know i've heard and i think this is in the piece that bruce wrote as well that that they would be welcome with open arms, that it would be a really, people would really appreciate the gesture. And I don't doubt that from a, from a, a global level, 
but all it takes is and, and we heard this yeah, as we ma- were as we watched matches all it takes is one drunken idiot to yell one stupid thing while Serena is tossing the ball in the stadium is silent and you're done yep yeah, that's, what, that's what Matt Cronin says in the yeah. in the Bruce Jenkins piece now I have it up so I'll just quote he said yep. all it takes would be a few idiots in the crowd who want to stir things up and it could be a nasty experience for them and they don't deserve that what's too bad is that so many new fans in Indian Wells don't get to see them play but yeah, once again, it's sort of a the crowd at Indian Wells is one of the meaner crowds out there, as I think anyone who's seen that video of the 2001 final can attest. But even this year, at the match, the qualifying match between Christian Harrison and Ernest Golbis, people there were like several hecklers like really screaming at Golbis constantly, and Golbis got pretty annoyed and you know joked about wanting yeah. to punch one of them later, and it was really all because. Christian is has a, had a USA next to his name, as far as I could tell. There I is mean, a bit of, of kind yeah. of a, a sense of entitlement, and totally. I and I'm, I'm totally just generalizing because I know for a fact that like this is not the case across the board. No, we're painting with very broad brushes. Very very broad, but there is a general sense of entitlement among the Indian Wells crowd of like, I've paid my money, I'm here, entertain me, mm-hmm. you know, and then I've I've paid for my right to yell what I want to yell, and you know things like that, and they are they can be they can be very very you know, brutal to players. So, you know, I mean, it would just take the one drunken idiot and every crowd, you're talking about a crowd of 15,000 people. You don't think there's going to be a drunken idiot. That's not going to, who's going to not, not even drunk, just some idiot who's going to just yell the N word just because he thinks it's funny. That could very well happen. You have to understand what, you know, the sisters have experienced and not just this one incident. I mean, it's a constant sort of thing in tennis tournaments with tennis crowds, with crowds in foreign countries. They play in Europe, they play in Australia, both of which, like the U.S., can have questionable race situations sometimes. I mean, yeah. I remember when I was waiting for her, Serena's practice after she'd rolled her ankle in the first round of the Australian Open this year, after I was waiting at the practice court for her the next day, uh, the things I was overhearing people say about her in the crowd were just unbelievable. Some people, like a couple people, that's right. all it takes, a couple people, were just unbelievably offensive and racist. And I'm not really going to repeat them here because they're just ridiculous. But you know that Serena has to overhear these things when they're when they're said loudly by her practice court. It's a constant thing that she has to deal with. And even if maybe they didn't handle it as well as they could have back in 2001, which I think is fair to say that maybe they didn't, it's not really relevant right now. I mean, all that's relevant is how they felt. Yeah, it's it's you know, and that's the one thing that I always I always just come back to is that like you know what you were saying before, kind of quoting the articles of like, oh, you know, I can't imagine what it was like, but. And it's like, but you can't. One of the things that I was really happy about with, with Elizabeth Newman writing that piece was like, you know, it echoed a lot of kind of my thoughts and things like that. But I never felt comfortable writing that piece because, yes, I'm a minority and like whatever, but I'm not going to sit there and pretend that the Asian American experience is in, in America is equal to the African American experience. I'm not going to sit there and say that. But at the same time, that doesn't – I mean, I've been in tennis rooms. I've been in – you know, the press room at tennis tournaments all over the globe where, you know, your minority status is becomes readily apparent. And people like, you know, kind of the white, particularly the white male press core, uh, that is the tennis core, don't really understand how that makes you feel because mm-hmm. they think they're making a joke or they think that like, no big deal. Like they, they don't, cause they're not racist. Like clearly what they said isn't racist or like whatever. And you're kind of sitting there and you're feeling very much the outsider in this world it, in which you are not an outsider. 
you know, and, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to articulate, but, you know, I'm, I'm just glad the piece got written. I'm glad that both sides got to be, got, got uh, a say, uh, because it's, you know, even like you and I, we had an interview with Billie Jean King uh, mm-hmm. last week and uh, the topic came up and she was, she was kind of the same of like, you know, I really wish that they'd play here. You know, I think it'd be good. I think it'd be a tremendous gesture of goodwill. But at the same time, which I I don't know, on some level, I, I guess I was a little bit surprised by that response. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she also said, you know, but their truth is their truth. And it doesn't matter what my truth is. Right. And that is, to me, that's the end of the discussion. If you believe that Venus and Serena believe what happened happened, why the hell would they come back? Yeah. And how do you even have a leg to stand on to tell them to get over it? Or to forgive and forget, or whatever. It it makes no sense to me. And anybody generally who argues that they should just like give it up it, are, is just being like ignorant to kind of what it feels like to be in that situation, and how deep those scars can run. The and risk reward just is not right for them. I mean, right. they come back, everything goes well. What do they get out of it? Like another tennis term on their schedule? They don't right. need that. Right. No, especially when they love Miami so much, and it's next week. Exactly. And when we talk about, you know, how exhausting it can be for players to do the double, well, this leaves them better for Miami. So, plus there. The two of us are pretty much on the same page on this. Oh, without a um, doubt, yeah. But the rest of the world may not be, but that's that's how we feel. Word. So let's talk about Miami. Sure. Which neither of us will be there, but a whole lot of tennis players will be there. And, and... I'm sure they'll have a wonderful time. They had a wonderful time tonight as we record this. But Calvin Harris at the player party. That's a nice player That's party. That's a nice get. It's a nice get. For definitely. sure. So let's talk about the draws a little bit. Let's talk about the women first because this is, like I think I said earlier in the show, this sort of feels more fifth slammy for women than men just because the full participation and especially with some of the men subtractions that we'll get to later. Um, so Serena, number one still, and likely to stay number one through this tournament unless a bunch of stuff happens it's not the easiest draw in the world in a section where she gets flavia panetta first then maybe vickmeyer and then chibulkova or safarova and then maybe wasniaki or lena so not not an easy not an easy thing for her i don't think i agree it's a draw i mean it's obviously she doesn't have to play all the people that are like dangerous in her draw but it's a draw that could yield very dangerous matchups especially later in the tournament i mean sibulkova can zone Mm-hmm. Safarova has been, you know, a pretty good opponent in the past. Uh, Lena, obviously, right there. Yeah, uh, Waz beat her last there last year. Mm-hmm. Um, Kvitova, uh, Bartoli, and one other big Sloan. Name. Sloan's there. Venus. Venus and Redvanska. Yeah, Redvanska. All those. Uh, those are all. Sem- and Mona Bartle. And Mona Bartle. And Mona Bartle. All potential semifinal opponents. Yeah. So. You know, it's not it's not easy. You know, the the Azarenka Sharapova half is much much more cake. But I don't know. I think that's a good thing for Serena to know yeah. that she's going to have the pressure from the get go and she can't Rosano it. Yeah, now, she'll be ready against Flavia Panetta. She knows Flavia Panetta is tough. Yeah. So even if Panetta did not look especially tough in that sad first round match yeah. she had in Indian Wells <laughs> well, against well. Skivoni, that was sad. That was sad. That was sad. That was a lasagna that had been left out in the rain for a few days. <laughs> That was sad. It was a soggy, soppy mess. <laughs> it was not great. But I think that Flavia will play better against Serena just because it won't be the whole, you know, friend, country, woman across the net thing going on there. Um, bottom half, 
course, this is a speed analysis of this shot, pretty much. Of course. Bottom half, uh, one quarter is led by Sharapova, who I think we should, I think should get through this quarter for sure. Yeah. Um, but Kirilenko's in there as well, and she was tough. Kirilenko and... would be a third round match, mm-hmm. uh, fourth round. Kirilenko would be fourth round. Fourth round, quarterfinals. Third round, third round would be Viznina. Uh, quarterfinal would be Irani right. or Ivanovic. Actually, let's talk a little bit, or maybe Kuznetsova. But let's talk about Ivanovic a little bit. Because well, that was one of, I think, our stronger reactions in Indian Wells. That was way depressio. Was to Anna Ivanovic's lost to Mona Bartle. And you are the authority on all things Anna Ivanovic, <laughs> Courtney. So I'm going to defer to you. Tell me what you saw in that Ivanovic match against Mona Bartle in Indian Wells. There was no fight. Yeah. None of them whatsoever. I mean, she is a player who is polarizing on many different levels, but one of the significant ones and one that most people point to is like, oh, she fist pumps and Ides after every point. And there was none of that against Mona Barthel. Yeah. There was, she was completely flat. Um, Nigel had to kind of just beg her for some energy. I had interviewed her after the Taylor Townsend win, which was not, I mean, she won it easily scoreboard wise, but it wasn't a convincing win really. Yeah, considering their her, comparative resumes. Right, and point. and talked to her after the match and was not really impressed by her demeanor, I suppose. I mean, not, not in a negative way. I mean, she was perfectly pleasant and answered all the questions, but there was just missing, there was something missing um, from her that I'm not used to seeing. Yeah. And then that kind of came to fruition against Barthel. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going on with her. I mean, it, it made me think that there was more, something was going on off court that was stressing her out or worrying her or something like that, but it was disconcerting. I mean, it was, it was disappointing. I mean, I, I had chosen her to make the semis out of that half of the draw. Um, yeah. And as it was, I guess it was Kerber. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a disappointing performance from her. Disappointing. And her ranking, Miami seats don't really reflect it yet. I don't think, but her ranking has fallen to like number 17 or so. Right. So she could be in a bit of trouble there. Um, and just basically, I think that match could possibly signal like the end of her as sort of a relevant quarterfinal threat at big tournaments for a while if she doesn't turn something around big because that was just a totally dead performance. It was a dismal performance yeah. for sure. Anyway, moving on from her, last quarter has Kerber and Azarenka. Azarenka still in the tournament as of now. Like we said, we won't be shocked if she pulled out at some point. And if she plays, I mean, midpoint. And if she plays, she's got she she's got she could get Madison Keys in the second. Mm-hmm. She could get Cornet or Robson. Cornet, Cornet or Robson, and Cornet's been playing a lot better. Yeah, she has as of late. I Car- Carla in the third or, J- Carla, or Jamie Hampton. Talented. That's a tough little corner up there, actually. It is. This, that that um that Azarenka section. Bunch of good floaters in there. I mean, Mikhail, Hampton, Nicolescu, Robson, uh, Keys, all tough. Carla. Carla. Not bad. Carla, so. the NCR, like player who we just really want to win a title pretty much she's never right? won a title she's yeah. never won a title and that's not right like she should have won a title by now i don't think it's gonna be this week no it's Put probably not gonna be this week but yeah no she played well in uh in uh and he was against sharapova i think actually that was probably sharapova's one of sharapova's tougher matches was against carla i think that's right yeah yeah so another grinder that pova had to play now let's move to the men the men. Um, now you were, you had a thought on this draw before we started the show, Courtney. What do you what do you think about this men's Miami draw? So the men's Miami draw does not include Roger Federer, or Rafael Nadal. Uh, Federer had announced long ago that he didn't plan to play it. Rafa pulled out. I mean, before his the final at Indian Wells. 
Um, but looking at the draw without those two names, golly, that is a crap draw. Like yeah, it's for, it's for, just for, for a fifth slam. Yeah, unquote. for a quote unquote fifth slam that's supposed to be like super exciting and like whatever. I had problems in the first like first three rounds, like identifying matches that were like must watches. I mean, you know, Andy Murray versus Tomic is a good second rounder. Um, you know, uh, Harrison playing Blake in the first round, but like on the whole, it really kind of lost a lot of like uh, uh, fire uh, firepower, I suppose. Yeah. And so it just made me think, like, is this what? we're in for when Rafa and Roger retire, which is going to happen before Andy and Novak retire. So if you assume that Novak and Andy will kind of be on top of the game, top of the game for years to come, I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. I mean, it's kind of a bummer. And I think that the Andy Novak rivalry, considering they've played the last two grand finals against each other, a bunch of other big matches. I don't think it's really clicked for people. Yeah. It it really hasn't resonated. I, I think their matches are just sort of, um, I think people have said rather than, you know, looking like they're inspiring each other, look like they're irritating each other on court yeah. more with their play. And it's just, Possibly. yeah, it's just like, it's not the most fun matchup to watch. I don't think personally, I haven't yeah, I mean, it's hard their matches because you're coming off of a matchup of Rafa versus Roger, which is like the ultimate and opposites, which obviously makes for so many amazing storylines. And yeah. you have R- Rafa versus Novak, which is always interesting, particularly on the quicker surfaces. Um, Novak versus Roger, very interesting. It has kind of an edge to it, that one. It has an edge. But Novak versus Andy, like, it's spy versus spy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's just, it's a generally the same game, except that Novak's just a little bit better. Just a little bit <laughs> of execution, and that's it. Yeah, you know, and consistency. Yeah. So, I don't know. It, it's a, yeah, I mean, it was just a bummer. I mean, you had court, I mean, the projected quarterfinals there, it's like, you know, Ferrer Del Potro, which Ferrer kind of owns, and Burdick Gasquet. A Burdick Gasquet projected quarterfinal in Miami. Projected quarterfinal of Novak and Tipsy, which isn't going to happen, but it's projected. Yeah, Tipsarvich has been awful lately. Yeah. Just awful. Bad. Kevin Anderson, actually, is a pretty good pick to make yeah. it through that, that, make it to that quarter. He's been playing well lately. Yeah. Ever since, you know, he and I almost died on our plane landing in <laughs> Indian Wells, which was nice. Before that, but okay. Before, and a little bit before that, but really that, that's, that was sort of the, you know, where he, I'm pretty sure he had his epiphany. Oh, obviously. I know, I know I did. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that's the draw, and I think that we'll be watching the women closer than the men which I don't think we were in Indian Wells. So. Do you think it's problematic at all that like Indian Wells, I mean, the fact is that Indian Wells gets more coverage than Miami. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm trying to figure out like kind of what that means for this year. I think, I hope, I just, I hope that the people who are covering Miami, uh, because I know that I definitely wrote more men's stories and women's stories in Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. I hope that people who are covering Miami do the opposite and recognize what they're being served here right. by both respective tours. I'm not confident that will happen, but I think with both Federer and Nadal out, it should. I think people should be able to pick up on that. It's with, hard with Federer and Nadal out and with Serena in, it should. Know Serena, that. every story is going to be Serena. Yeah. Serena and Sharapova. The thing is, is that like with less international and national press, and it's just going to be local. Yeah, a lot of Miami outlets. A really lot of Miami outlets. Miami. It'll be the coverage will be a little bit different, but yeah. hopefully, you know, I mean, it's been a bit slow early on, but hopefully it picks up over the Definitely. weekend. Definitely. 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 So now we're going to take a number as we do between one and a hundred 
and talk briefly about the player who corresponds to that number on each of the ATP and WTA rankings. You ready to roll, Courtney? I'm always ready to roll, Ben. I was born a rolling stone. (laughs) You were born a roll at first. Just a bread roll. A dinner roll. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, there are worse things than being a a dinner roll. Uh, Here we go. One through 100. Our number is 59. Split in middles again. Okay. (laughs) You sound okay. This will be a short one, right? (laughs) Right. Possibly. Courtney, who's number 59 on the women's tour this week? Number 59 is a player who, well, I'm just going to go into it. It's Romina Aprandi. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. yes, of Switzerland. Uh, so formerly that's of Italy. Formerly of Italy. Although, did you know she was born in Switzerland? I didn't know she was born in Switzerland. I did not know that. Her birthplace is Jägenstorf, Switzerland, because I was about to say Romina Aprandi, who's actually Italian and born in blah, blah, blah. But actually, she was born in Switzerland. So she's just returned to her roots. Exactly. Her her dance partner this week um, was apparently in the top 50 last week, which is news to me. Um, from her former country of Italy, it is none other than the one and only Paolo Lorenzi. Oh, dear. So. So. Uh, so. Let's start with Romina. Okay. Um, Romina, I think, is known far and wide for her proclivity for drop shots yes and for being taped like a mummy yes she's always taped it's like to the point where you're just like girl just get some compression shorts because <laughs> it's always her thighs yeah and her knees sometimes and her knees sometimes but lower leg i mean you know lower just a lot just a lot half, of tape there. a lot, lot of tape yeah um yeah i mean she's she's got the drop shot thing going um I will be honest, I don't really have much to say about Rina Aprandi. I mean, she just is there. Mm-hmm. She's, She's very not much a player there. that I look for in the draw or think is particularly dangerous in the draw. Nope. Uh, occasionally, I get her confused with Senya Pervac. Appearance-wise? Yeah. Yeah, I, think I can kind of see that. A little bit. So, and then I and then I get like, ooh, because Senya Pervac is somebody where I'm like. Actually, you could probably pull off an upset, and then I realize that it's Romina Prandi, and I relax. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't have much on her at all. I, all I know is that she hits a lot of drop shots, and that's her that's her move. And she's been hurt a lot, and is coming back from it. And she switched countries midway through, and she's actually playing in the Swiss uh, Australia Fed Cup tie coming up. Okay. In which Australia decided they cared so little about home court advantage. They were like, whatever, Switzerland, just hold this tie. Right. Which is funny because of, A, how terrible Sam Soster is in Australia, that she will <laughs> willingly play the tie away just to not play in Australia. For sure. And B, that, yeah, that people just don't care. Although Romina Prandi had a very good Fed Cup week earlier this year. She beat Kristen Flipkins and Yanina Wickmeyer, not dropping a set to either. Not bad, Romina. That's pretty good. Pretty good for a new country. For, yeah, for somebody who's rank 59th and beat two players inside the top 40 yeah so that's about it for her i think Romina probably also uh, if you don't count fed cup uh she has not won back-to-back matches all season that's not great yeah uh let's talk let's talk about <laughs> paolo lorenzi which will be also Ooh, short short um paolo lorenzi is at 59 dropping 10 spots in one week from a career high of 49 last week. Um, what, strikes out, what strikes me immediately about his very short little 
blurbs here on the site. He's 31 years old. And so he turned pro in 2003, um, which is actually pretty late to turn pro. When I think about it. He turned pro then when he was 22, which is really late. Maybe he played college? No. I don't think so. I don't know. Anyway, he turned pro at 22, which is late. Um, he has a career record of 21 and 46 on the main <laughs> tour, which is not great. Shows you he's played a lot of... They don't count challengers in there. So He's never won a Grand Slam singles match. Never won a Grand Slam singles match. He won, did really well in challengers in South America last year on clay in the fall, winning a title in Medellin and making a final in Guayaquil. So that's where his points come from. And yeah, he uh, he's there. He's Paolo Lorenzi. He's there. He's Paolo, he is Paolo Lorenzi. I wonder what makes someone turn pro at 22 if they didn't go to college. That's weird. That is weird. He's only earned, I mean, not only, but like. Only a million dollars yeah, in less 10 years. It doesn't balance is, out to very much. Given, considering all the travel costs and expenses and having a coach and all that, that's, and that's not a lot. And of it, it's already in the first three months of this year. Okay. So going into this year, it was closer to 800000 yeah. for a career, which yeah. is probably not great. Yeah. So he's staying afloat somehow. Good on him for. Keeping at it. You keep doing what you do, Paolo Lorenzi. No one's saying stop, but we're not saying, you know, (laughs) we're going to watch either. He likes reading books by Stephen King. His tennis idol was Boris Becker. He prefers hard courses in his bio, which is interesting for an Italian. (laughs) I like like the way this phrase. Mother Marina is a housewife and often follows him to tournaments. Not accompanies him to tournaments. I don't know. She's just like sort of there, like stalking him from like thirty yards behind me. Be there. Just just following. Yeah. Yeah. Italian moms. Italian moms. As long as she cooks the whole time, I'm sure he doesn't complain. There you go. There you go. That's number fifty-nine. Not not the world's greatest number this week necessarily in terms of what we have to talk about, but it's there. It is there. Lastly, for you on this week's episode, we're going to bring you another player interview that we did in Indian Wells. This one is with the current highest ranked uh, former college player on WTA Tour, who'd be none other than Mallory Burdett, who broke out, I think, by making the third round of U.S. Open last year. Also, as qualifier, made third round in Indian Wells last week, notching some nice wins, uh, most notably over Tamir Pashik, and then pushing Maria Karolinka pretty well to three sets. To three sets, yeah. So... For that Kirilenko match, we talked to her about what she thinks of life on tour so far, transition from Stanford, and yeah. So what what did you before we play this for people? What did you make of of Mallory our chat with Mallory? I mean, I just I I really like Mallory. I like I like her game a lot. I think that she doesn't play a college game. Not at all. When you look at her play, she plays a game that can succeed on the pro level, which has been the case. I mean, she's um. What do you what do you just, mean by college game? Why don't you explain that for people? Yeah, I mean, I th- I feel like the college game is a bit. I mean, no offense to college players, but it's a bit more, at least on the women's side, kind of like juniors plus. So it's a lot of like consistency is quite is valued quite a bit, you know, kind of grinding wins out, you know, whereas Burdette has some power and she can hit winners and she can go big. And, you know, she she, you know, I mean, looking back at her Stanford career, like, you know, she was often uh, overshadowed by Nicole Gibbs who is the NCAA champion and obviously her doubles partner at Sanford and stuff. And Gibbs beat her in the singles final. Beat her in the singles final. And Gibbs has more of kind of like, it's a Wozniaki light game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's very consistent, but uh, isn't something that you think is going to actually 
blow anybody away. So I feel like Burdette has a bit more of that, um, which is nice. And she's a really smart kid, just really well-spoken, very thoughtful. Very, um, you know, I think it, it speaks volumes about, you know, the fact that she was in India Wells, which was her first time at India Wells, like by herself, you know, yeah. kind of having to find practice partners and stuff like that and kind of deal with everything. So she's just a really smart person, which I really respect, uh, generally speaking. I mean, we talked to Petco last week, so, you know, it was kind of the same vein, you know, kind of just listening to her say like she wants, you know, that the play, being a professional tennis player is so different from college because like, now she has to like force herself to like keep her mind sharp by like reading and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with her. So with no further ado, here is Mallory Burdett. Play us out. Have a good one, folks. Lates. So hi, Mallory Burdett. Hi, how are you? <laughs> how are you? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you, this is your first, I guess, sort of talking about your first full year on the tour. Mm-hmm. Only turned pro after the U.S. Open last year. How is it? You feeling used to this at all now? Is it still sort of crazy and new? It's all pretty crazy and new, um, especially um, since I haven't been to a lot of these tournaments. You know, each event feels very new, and when I get here, you know, trying to figure out where to go for practice courts and you know credentials and things like that, it's it's all a very new experience at this point. Is, are you? Do you sense that like you're like a new face in the locker room? That sometimes like walking around, people are like, wait. Who, who, who was that? Like, or... <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I, I kind of like it that way. I'd rather, you know, keep my head down and just do my work and um, not really have people, you know, looking at me. So um, I guess it's a good thing. You try to be nice and quiet in there, you know, like don't don't upset anybody <laughs> and just, you know, go about your own business. How much of getting used to life on tour and having, like, experience is kind of things like play matches, how to play a big point? How much of it is just having the stuff like finding a practice court, finding routine? I think I saw on the practice schedule a couple times you were like, it was like Malibredet and then like looking for partners. Exactly. So how does, how does that all that stuff and new and challenging for you, I guess. It all ties in together, and I think it all has to do with just feeling like you belong. Yeah. And, um, you know, I actually got to warm up with Svetlana Kuznetsova earlier this week, and she was kind of planning on hitting with her coach, but they had put it down as if we were warming up together, so I didn't really have anyone. So she was like, it's okay, we'll warm up. And um, it actually ended up being, obviously, it was a fantastic hit. She's such a great player um so just little experiences like that um i think are really really cool and it's all just about you know feeling like you belong and um you know it's a little scary you know you got to walk up there to the desk and you know you see that you know vesnina has someone looking and you're like hmm, should i sign up for court <laughs> or should i put my name down with her and so um i i think just getting used to being out there with the top players on a daily basis is, feeling like you belong in a sentence with a vesnina right because obviously you were on the outside looking in playing college and sort of looking up i guess it right exactly tour. Yeah. well i mean like so what was more nerve-wracking first day at stanford or, like, rolling up to Indian Wells and kind of being like, uh, is it kind of the same kind of feeling of just, I don't really know what to expect? And Yeah, I think I think at Stanford it's a little bit different. Um, 
But I mean, actually, yeah, it's kind of the same thing because you're surrounded by some of the smartest people in the world, and you're walking in there, and you're and like, "You deserve to be there." You Do got I in. belong here? <laughs> like what? Oh my god! Um, so it's kind of the same feeling, and I think um, I never really thought of it that way, but I guess I have felt that feeling before. The first day when you walk into those classes, and you're like, hmm. "Right, like, <laughs> what, know. Am I, what am I exactly am I supposed to do? Like, yeah. you know, do I bring a notebook, a binder? Yeah. Like, you know, go buy your books, yeah. you know, everything like that?" I would think it'd be somewhat similar, just because. Um, yeah, it can be an intimidating process either way. I guess here they don't have, you know, counselor, well, I don't know, maybe they do, like have some sort of counselor or mentor situation to help you through, like, a process. I they guess. definitely do. Um, they the, the WTA is just awesome. I mean, they support you all the way through from everything from, you know, the media training. Um, you know, it's just awesome. Like, they, you know, they walk you to every media event, and they prepare you for what to expect. And it's just... Um, it's awesome. They they do a great job of preparing me, and so I'm thankful for that as I'm learning as well. Right. I mean, have you, did they have to, when you first started and you turned pro, did you have, they have to sit down with you and, like, walk you through, like, the rule book, and this is how scheduling works and rankings and all that, or did you kind of already know it, or...? I didn't really know it. There's still probably a lot of things that I don't know, but I, um, you know, you kind of learn on the fly. Um, you're, when you have a question about, you know, the per diem and hotels, you go back to the rule book and you read about that thing. And then, you know, you run into maybe another issue and you go back to revert back to the rule book. I, I don't think I've, you know, I definitely haven't gone through and read the whole thing or anything like that. Um, but the WTA, they do a lot of, you know, like the media training and they do stuff for new pros just to kind of teach you. Um, about exactly. Yeah. Has there been one thing that's been, you know, most important thing advice you've gotten early on and how to manage tour life that's paid off for you already? You think? Um, I think the biggest thing for me personally is just not being really tough on myself and just kind of going with the flow. It's you know sometimes you just cannot control everything, and um, so I think at school you know I had a little bit more control. I could you know I could go study for a couple extra hours if I wanted to make sure. And, you know, there are certain things that I can control, but, um, you know, a lot of, th a lot of times with travel and with injuries and things like that, it's just important to stay relaxed and go with the flow. Right. And I mean, that's kind of the con uh, personality trait of most tennis players, really. It's like that, that battle between wanting to be in control, but tennis is a game that in which, except for one shot, right. you're never in control. You're constantly adapting and, and trying to just kind of roll with it, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So I think um, kind of going through this process has, you know, also helped me on the court as well with just staying relaxed and taking what my opponent gives me and um, doing the best I can with it. Is it tough going from a team environment, like you were playing at Stanford in the NC2As and everything, and then now it's just, I mean, you're here without a coach and right. doing everything solo? It's definitely different. Like I, jarring? And, like, you're, like, yeah, like just kind of two different ways to approach tennis, I suppose. Exactly. I, I think I really enjoyed the team aspect of school, but I was also pretty independent on the court. You know, my coaches would obviously come out, and, you know, you can do encore coaching in college, and so um, they would come out and talk to me and things like that. But a lot of times I was pretty independent, and so um, it wasn't a huge um, – it's definitely different, but I I think I, um, I do okay when I'm on my own. So, How much of – a fan of pro women's tennis were you when you were a college player? How closely did you follow the tour and the players? 
So we have this thing at Stanford called the Stanford Bubble, uh-huh. and <laughs> you don't know much about anything else that's going on. If there's a cool YouTube video or whatever, like unless it made it into the Stanford Bubble and someone started spreading it around, you're not going to know about it. So um, I didn't follow that closely when I was at school because it's just you know a million other things going on. Um, but I think definitely last summer. As I started to play more of the pro tournaments, you know, I'm sitting there watching Wimbledon and I'm thinking, you know, I would really, really love to play there at some point. So, And did that kind of really, the, you know, watching the tournaments and kind of almost re-engaging, I suppose, with the, the current tour, has that really kind of helped inform you when you decide to turn pro, like after your run at the U.S. Open? Um, definitely. It, um, it's just very, you know, to start looking at these girls again and to... You know, and also I've seen some of these girls in the juniors, you know, when I played ITFs and things like that, and to kind of see them come up and, you know, develop into great players, I was like, you know what, you know, maybe I can do this, and, um, you know, maybe at this point in my life, you know, I can always go back to school five years later, but... Stanford um, will always be there. (laughs) Exactly. So, I and I cannot, you know, play pro tennis, Mm -hmm. you know probably couldn't do it in five years you know to start up from scratch so what was that decision like I was talking to you during the US Open or you were asking questions like so you know you've made this amount of money so far for the first round for the second round third round and what was that like decision like for you in New York and how you eventually decided to make the jump so I think it was it was a really personal decision um, and again the biggest thing was I just felt like it was the right time. I was in the right frame of mind. You know, I was really, really itching to go and get to work on my game and really improve my fitness and things like that. Just the things that I needed to do to kind of get going on the tour. And um, I felt like I wouldn't be able to do that in five years. And my parents have always been very, you know, they always wanted me to go to school. They wanted all of their kids to get their degree. And so I think it was, um, I knew the decision The decision ultimately had to be up to me, but I think it was kind of a defining moment when even my parents were looking at me and they said, you know what, I think you should go for it. I think you should forego your senior year. You know, my very conservative parents, right, right. <laughs> you know, are saying that to me. It was nice to have their support, and um, it was definitely part of me, a big part of my decision. Um, so, Did you get to talk to Sloan at all about it? Obviously, I mean, you're really good friends with, with Sloan Stevens, so... Do you know, she give you any kind of tips like, yeah, no, it's fun, or, dude, seriously, stay, you look like you're having an awesome time at Stanford. <laughs> no, I think Sloan, I didn't really talk to Sloan that much about it, but I talked to her mom, Sybil. Um, Sybil, Miss Sybil is like a second mother to me. She's awesome. And so I think after I lost to Maria in the third round, I just kind of, like, it had been a long week. I got sick before that match. I just kind of bent over and, like, started crying right in front of the locker room, kind of, like, in front of everybody in the hallway. And Sybil was right there. I don't know what she was doing, if she was waiting on Sloan or whatever. And she just came over, and she was like, it's okay. You know, there are so many doors open for you. Um, you know, just do what you want to do, basically. And so, um, thank God she was there because otherwise the media people would have been like, oh, like, maybe we should give you 45 minutes instead of just 30. Yeah. So, what, so how did that work in terms of the actually turning pro during the US Open? You got to get your prize money? Is that able to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, 
I thought that once you check the amateur box that you couldn't go back, but I think it's basically if you won that prize money, you can take it no matter what. You just obviously realize that you're giving up your eligibility to Right, it's college. more of an issue with the NCAA right, as opposed to with the like, tournament and right. the tour and stuff. Exactly. Right. So this, but winning those matches and getting that prize money sitting there, if you just check a box, is that really sped up your decision more than you expected probably? So there must have been some sort of time constraints on when you had to do it to get the, the money, right? Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely knew that I needed to make a decision right then and there yeah. at U.S. Open. And um, so, yeah, I think it wasn't so much about the money, but it was just nice to kind of have a starting point, you know, yeah. to have something in, um, you know, a little bit of a reserve as I got going on tour because, you know, it's, it's not cheap yeah. to this live this life. Yeah. So No doubt. No doubt. So outside of, like, tennis at Stanford, like, do you miss school? Do you miss just kind of the rhythms of school? I miss school. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, you know, it's fun to go to class and learn about new things. I was a psych major. I loved it. And, um, yeah, it's definitely tough. And on the tour, I have to kind of keep my mind sharp. And um, when I have free time, usually, you know, during the off season, I was just so exhausted most of the time when you get home that it was hard to even sit down and read a book. But sometimes here, you know, you got to rest up the day before your match. And it's like, what do I do with this right. free time? And so um, my boyfriend, he actually picked up Russian while he was in college. And so um, I'm, like, trying to learn Russian. Trying to use it with Kuznetsova? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, no, I didn't. I was a little too scared. Um, but, um, but just, like, trying to keep my mind sharp mm -hmm. with reading or anything like that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what, being a psych major... What do you think of, like, the world of WTA? Obviously, people think a lot about, you know, are people, you know, head cases, or is there choking going on, or just people have sort of crazy tennis personalities. What do you make of this landscape from sort of a psych, and I guess like an anthropological sort of sort of take? That's a new arrival here. Yeah, I think that any professional athlete, it's really, really difficult because you have to be willing every single day that you walk out on the court to kind of stick your neck out there and be willing to take risks. And some days you wake up and you just don't feel like going out and taking a risk. And when you just have to go to class and go to practice at school in the afternoon or, you know, you just have to you know, show up at your nine to five job. I'm sure there are a lot of other jobs that are much more stressful and, you know, in the workplace, but you know, you just really have to, and if you're not feeling it that morning, you got to sit down and take the time to get your mind in the right place or else it's going to be really ugly. So I think a lot of it is just really, really controlling your emotions and being really self-aware. Um, because it's hard. There's no doubt about it. And I'm sure that's why I have so much respect for, um, I've just watched Maria Sharapova quite a bit, um, and she just seems so solid and so, you know, in the zone every single day. And so I, I think that's amazing and, um, you know, hopefully something that I yeah, can work on. Yeah, you mentioned her, I think, at the U.S. Open as well as a player that you found to be, like, mentally just really there and focused and able to kind of have deal with, I guess, good nerves better than bad nerves sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, is is that, when you look at it, is that like an issue of routine, of coming, you know, of how do you get there, I guess, is kind of, I mean, which is the ultimate question, but. Um, uh, I don't know, because I'm not there yet. <laughs> um, so I guess it's just, 
learning about, first of all, I think it starts with being self-aware. So when you wake up in the morning, let's say you're on the wrong side of the bed, you're like, all right, I'm on the wrong side of the bed. Now, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to get to where we want to be? And then from there, it's just, you know, I have certain pre-match routines that you do or like, you know, doing some cardio and doing some yoga each day so that you're, you know, nice and calm when you go out there. It's just like... not only do you have to be in the moment on the court, but you also have to be in the moment, you know, each day when you're assessing yourself um, to, you know, nip things in the bud and make sure that um, your mind is just as sharp as your body. You have to put in just as much effort on the mental side that you do on the body and on, you know, staying loose and stretching and, you know, it's all the same thing in terms of the mental side. I mean, with that self-awareness, I've heard some players, you know, you'll hear players say like, I don't want to be self-aware. Like that if I am self-aware, then I know when I'm having a, a crap day and then I panic. And, you know, and so I just would prefer to be completely ignorant and just kind of go through and, and not have to worry about that. I mean, is it like, a weird, I mean, talk about striking that kind of balance, I guess. I think it's different for different people. See, I like to... Like, I, I like to know why I feel a certain way and what brought that on. And, you know, sometimes You're I get... major. I mean, like, sometimes, yeah, sometimes I get a little bit too into it. But I think, um, for me, it's important to just identify what's going on, you know, because I... I if I walk out there and I try to pretend like nothing's wrong, it doesn't work for me. I have to, like, think through it and um, give myself kind of direction that I want to go and... Um, so, yeah. So this is like your like, sort of a first day in school thing, carrying forward. What are you looking forward to most, like, in terms of upcoming stuff on the tour? You haven't done almost most of the big tournaments yet. Is there one thing, one mile, so one city you haven't been to before that you want to go to? What is what's What do you have circled on your calendar, sort of? Um, I think I have Wimbledon circled on my calendar. Yeah. Um, I only got to go to Wimbledon once when I was a junior, and... Um, I just have a feeling that I'll do really well on the grass. You know, I like the fast surfaces, and um, I like to play aggressively. And also, I'm just really excited also about getting my doubles ranking up. I love playing doubles, and um, that's definitely something that I want to work on um, over the course of the rest of this first year and really, you know, establish myself as a doubles player as well because um, I think it's just so much fun to... Um, play with a partner and kind of it it reminds me of you know college and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and I um, was lucky to have a lot of success in college doubles so I definitely want to get back to that as well. Nicole Gibbs I know has talked about turning pro at the end of this year for her Mm -hmm. what sort of advice you obviously have doubles partners with her you had one men's CAs and stuff what sort of advice would you give her in terms of things to look out for when you first make the switch to pros like if you wish there's something you would have known or something like that um I guess everybody tells you, you know, there's going to be that time where you realize, all right, I am actually out here on my own. Um, and it's, it's a little jarring and you, everyone tells you that, but you think, no, no, I'll be fine. I know how to do this. I played tennis my whole life. I could figure it out. Right. Um, but there is going to be a moment where you sit there and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, do I belong here? Is this possible? Um, and I would say, you know, I guess don't be surprised when you do feel that and, you know, deal with it at the time, you know, talk to someone if you need to, or, um, you know, don't shy away from it because it's definitely, I think it's also something that you've got to realize that everybody else has that feeling at some point. And so it's not unnatural 
and um, it can be a little bit overwhelming at time, is it, times. Is it, is it just the, the loneliness of the sport, you think, or the sort of sink-a-swim nature of how tennis works? You have to keep really under a lot of pressure to make your career viable at all times. Exactly, and I think the biggest thing is when you're out there playing, it's just you out there on the court, and you're sitting there going, you know, nobody else is going to help me right now, <laughs> you know. So it's um, it's just the realization that, you know, your coach can help you in practice, your trainer can help you in the gym, but once you get out there on the court, it is all up to you. So what's the most embarrassing song on your iPod? <laughs> the most embarrassing song on my iPod would probably be, like, my Disney mixes. Nice. Solid. Your favorite, favorite Disney movie? Um, I'd have to say The Lion King. Okay. Um, the Lion King, The Little Mermaid, but I'd say The Lion King for sure. I just, uh, Mulan, actually. There, The one scene um, where, you know, she actually started training hard and doing well with um, the army training. I'll make a man out of you song. Exactly. <laughs> is, that, is, that like a, is that like a workout song for you? Like a sort of... No, it's more of like a... We would listen to it on the team before matches. We would turn it on in the locker room, and everybody, you know, would start singing. So, yeah, I'd say my Disney mixes are the most embarrassing that's part fair. of my That's fair. That's actually not, that's not embarrassing at all. I've heard so much worse. <laughs> well, Howie, thank you for joining us. Hope that Mulan keeps inspiring you to do great things. You know, you're not a you know, Chinese woman trying to be a man. And, yeah, best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you very so. much. Thank you.